We get back today to studying the book of Acts. We've been through Acts for several weeks now. We are today in chapter 12 of Acts. And uh, as we come to chapter 12, uh, it's interesting because we come to a passage that's really, I, I really enjoy, I'm going to enjoy teaching today, but it deals with the whole thing of, of us uh, understanding the importance of prayer. We often see prayer as a last resort. Well, you know, I've tried everything else, so let me just try praying. Let's just be honest. That's true, right? Many times. Um, but as we will learn today from the book of Acts, prayer is really to be our first response to anything in life and to everything in life. Recently, I came across this uh, little uh, video that's actually a news story that I want you to watch before we look into, the, into God's Word this morning. It's called A Robber's Change of Heart. Watch this. It's there it a robbery is. that started out like any other. Police say 23-year-old Gregory Smith jumps the counter. At I thought that was an interesting story of somebody who, who prays uh, during, I mean, how many of us would pray, start praying right in the middle of somebody got a gun in your face? Uh, true story that happened just a couple, about three, four years ago in Indianapolis, just down the road from us here. Um, chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 12 of, of the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at this story, not the whole chapter today, uh, but a, a good portion of the first several verses of chapter 12, which deals with um, a very interesting story there about some things that happened there in the early church. As, as we were talking about before this a few weeks ago, and actually a couple of weeks ago on Palm Sunday, we talked about chapter 11, and we talked about how God was beginning to change the hearts of people. He was beginning to open the gospel, not just to the Jewish community, but to Gentiles as well. And Peter's heart was changed in a real way. But at the same time, you realize that one of the reasons that it was changed and that things were happening the way they were is because there was persecution of the early church and people were being, uh, the, the early church was being pushed in different directions. And as we begin uh, the, uh, the chapter 12, we read these verses, verses 1. It says, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them, the continuation of the persecution. And then he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. This is the first uh, apostle who was martyred of, of the apostles, uh, James, the brother of John. And then, it's, then he says this, when he saw, when Herod saw that this, that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. And Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. A couple of things to say about these verses this morning. The first thing is this. We notice that Herod, uh, this Herod, there are several Herods. This Herod in particular, though, had an addiction to popularity. When he saw that killing James, one of the church leaders, led him to become more popular more uh, someone that people tend to like, uh, he said, well, you know, if I'm going to kill him, let's go for the big guy. Let's go for Peter, the number one guy there. And so he, he, uh, he arrests him and he puts him in prison. And, and, and it's interesting how many people it takes to keep Peter in jail. Obviously, and we'll learn later, it doesn't work at all. But he had 16 soldiers on shifts of four. And we learned that two of the soldiers in each shift were actually chained to Peter. 
And so this is the, this is the links to where, where, uh, uh, Herod is going to do this. Now, why did Herod go to this extreme? Well, you remember if we've gone back and we started studying Acts a long time ago, earlier on in Acts, we learned that Peter has already been in jail. You know, he'd been there before and he escaped once before and he'd been taken out before. But the thing is here is we see Peter being put in jail. And the irony of this, in a sense, is when it happens as well. Uh, it was the, during the time when the Jews were celebrating, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called Passover. It was the time where the Jews were celebrating the deliverance of their nation through God's intervention. And here we see two things. Sometimes we focus so much on Peter, we forget about James. James, one of the, one of the apostles, is killed. And Peter is imprisoned. And this all happens around the time of this, of the Passover. And the interesting thing about this is how does the church react? How does the church react? It says something to us. The church turns to prayer. The church turns to prayer. It's only weapon. In response to the death of one of its leaders, the imprisonment of another one, Peter is in prison. He's in, it's, it's a monumental, it's a huge problem that the church had no way uh, to resolve. And, 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 as, and as we see that here, and we're going to talk about this this morning, as we understand, do we have problems today that are bigger than we can solve on our own? Yes? No? Oh, well, I'm in control of everything. I can fix, fix anything. You know, we're smart. We have resources, do we not? <laughs> but, you know, what about the problems in the world today of the three billion people who are desperately poor? How about the problem of one billion people every day that are hungry? How about the problem, the, the world's class size problem of 30,000 children, one every three seconds who die in our world from preventable diseases? What about the problems of stingy people with resources, of corrupt leaders and dictators? What about the problems, our personal problems that we have? What about the news from the doctor? you may have had what about the resistance of your spouse are those problems you can solve on your own see when the challenge is greater than we are what do you do well the example of acts 12 is this we pray we pray first and we pray most that's what the church was doing Because we read on in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, it says, So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Earnestly praying to God. Not just kind of like praying a little bit, not just praying formal prayers. They were earnestly praying. It's, It's a word that means they were on their faces before God, praying for him. Well, while Peter was in prison, they didn't petition the government. They didn't protest the arrest. They, they prayed. They prayed as if prayer was their only hope. Because it was. You know, I've seen this over the years in people's lives, realizing there's things you can't do. You cannot make, you can try to argue a person into heaven, but you can't do it. I want to tell you that. So often somebody, you know, you have, I remember years ago in, in one of my, in the ministry in Virginia, the last church I was at for 13 years, as a senior pastor, there was a lady there. There's a lady still there. She's, she's still around. Her name is Greta. 
And Greta is, is, is a godly woman. I mean, I don't know of anybody. If, if you have a you know, godly woman in the dictionary, you'd have a picture of Greta you know, next to it. Godly woman who just loves people and loves God so much. But the greatest burden in her heart for many, many years, and I saw this early on in the ministry, was, was her son. Her oldest son. His name's Chet. And for years and years and years, Chet had grown up in the church. He'd gone to youth group. He had done all the right things. And they had tried everything. But as soon as he got out of high school, as soon as he went to college, he, he, he went off on the wild side and he was doing all the kind of things and crazy things. And he just had no use for God whatsoever. And Greta began to pray for Chet. And when I met Greta, she had been praying for her son Chet for 15 years. And Chet still had not come around. And she continued to pray for Chet. And, and I saw a lady who prayed fervently every time we got together in some kind of a prayer meeting or prayer gathering. The number one thing on her heart was her son, Chet. She prayed earnestly and fervently for him. And I knew probably in her own private time, she was probably on her face before God praying for him. Five years After I first heard that prayer, which had been prayed for 15 years already, I met Chet. Greta was persistent, if anything. One day they were going to have a yard sale, a family yard sale at their house. And this was when uh, that a year, about the year that at the time we decided that the church there in Virginia, which was an older traditional Baptist church, we decided to start a contemporary service. And we were in need of musicians badly. We had a keyboard and an acoustic guitar, and that was it. And so I began the creative thing of, of doing musician evangelism. It's when you go out and try to find people who can play instruments and lead them to Christ so they can play in the band, you know. And so Greta came to me and she said, Bill, you know, we've been praying for Chet for all these years. I didn't know. I've never met Chet. Thought I knew Chet intimately because I prayed for him for years and years too with her. And, and she, she came to me and she said, hey, we're having this family yard sale and Chet and his wife are going to be there. Would you come by and just kind of show up and hang out and get to know Chet? And I went by and hung out and didn't buy anything, and stayed around and met Chet. Chet was the nicest guy, the most, I mean, he was, a, I, I, all of you would like Chet. Easy going. And I come to understand he's an incredible musician. Not only does he play guitar and about 15 other instruments really well, he also is a, a Martin representative, which means he fixes Martin guitars. I mean, he's, he knows what he's doing. And as I was there that day, God opened the door for me to say to Chet, this is this was my approach. I said, Chet, and this is not usually the way we do it. Now, usually we like people who are committed to Christ to be on stage, okay? Back then when you first start, you just kind of do it, get with what you got. And uh, <laughs> But the issue was is that is I said to Chet, I said, Chet, you know, we're starting a contemporary service. He says, what in the world is that? I said, we're going to have a whole band. I knew Chet. I'd found out from his mom. Chet played country music in a in a band in a bar. 
And a very, very good. He could sing. He could sing too, man. The guy can sing is great too. And so I said, you know, we could really use a good musician. How about you come out over to practice with a couple other guys I've talked to? And I talked that week to a guy that I used to know who had been in Marine and played drums. <clears throat> he, he was kind of marginal too. But, uh, and so they got those guys together and they became the core of our band. And he started coming to church. And two years later, he gave his life to Christ. And I believe it was all because he had a mom who fervently prayed for him. Who constantly was before God. And saw the need for that. It wasn't overnight. 20 years of prayer. When I was in Africa recently, I shared with you some stories, but one I haven't, I don't think I've shared with you, maybe just mentioned it. There was one guy in Folly in the village there that when we were sharing and sitting around talking, I told you his name before because it's a really interesting name. His first name was Jigaba. Jigaba. Uh, Jigaba uh, is this little, short, very high-energy guy. And uh, Jigaba was the only one in the village that spoke a little bit of English. Very little. He thought he was really good, but he really didn't know a lot of English. But he, he was very good. But he was the first Christian in Falia. He had actually gone to live somewhere else for a while and to work in a in a restaurant, I think in Dakar. I wasn't really sure because I couldn't get everything out of him. Couldn't understand everything he was saying. But but Jigaba shared that several years before, he had gone to this place. He had worked in this restaurant there. He lived away from the village and he'd come back. And while he was gone, he accepted Christ. He understood about Christ and he came back. And he t- told us that Sunday morning as we met together for worship that for, for five years, he had prayed for someone to come. And to share with people in his village about Christ because he was the only Christian there in a village of several hundred people. And he was overjoyed that that morning we had ten people gathered together under a tree, a mango tree, to have a worship service three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. And he had been praying for that every day, he said, for five years fervently, earnestly. See, in James 5, 16, it says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Powerful and effective. Now, when we pray, I want to say this, prayer does not change the nature of God. God is God. He is unchanging. But some way, in His economy, the prayers of His children factor in. And so we see the Jerusalem church here praying while Peter is in prison. They pray because they know that their prayers factor into the equation. Now, I'm sure that they had prayed for James as well. We don't see that here, but James had been killed. But here was Peter, their leader, in prison. And in verse 6, it begins to tell us the story about what happens after he's in prison. As as they're praying, keep in mind, as they're praying. Verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Remember I told you he was bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at his entrance. So he has two guys chained to him, 
two guys standing guard at the entrance to his jail cell. That's the picture here. And it says this, verse 7, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. It says he, the angel, struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Now think about this for a moment, folks, this picture. James, Peter's good friend, has been killed. Peter seems to be next in line. He is in jail, chained between two guards, waiting his trial. And what is he doing? Sleeping. Sleeping. And the angel has to get him up. Now, I don't know how angels get you up. Do they poke you with their sword? Do they, you know, flap their wings? I don't know how they do that. But it says, he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains uh, fell off of Peter's wrist. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Now, this is kind of a comical picture to me. I mean, the angel's trying to tell him, obviously, Peter was still kind of groggy. He wasn't all together. He wasn't thinking about what he was. Just think about it. Just, you know, the angel has to tell him what to do. The chains fall off his wrist. Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And it says this, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing. And it was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision, it says. He was still kind of like, it's, the vision to me is almost like he's, you know, thinking this is a dream. As we see, he thinks it's a vision. He doesn't think it's real. And it says in verse 10, They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Interesting verses. Interesting story. According to this, these verses, what is the result of honest prayer? Remember, all the people were praying for Peter. He was in prison awaiting his execution. But he was sleeping. According to these verses, I believe one of the, what the result of, of honest prayer is, one of them is a good night's sleep. I mean... Peter is sound asleep. His friend James has been killed. He's next in line. He's changed the two guard. He's sound asleep. The very apostle. And remember this. This is the very apostle who wondered how Jesus could sleep in the boat in the middle of a storm. Remember, he was the one that asked him about how could he do that. The same one that did that asked Jesus how could he possibly do that now is sleeping in the middle of his own storm. Could you use a good night's sleep? <laughs> and can you picture that the angel having to wake him up? This drowsy. I think it's a comic. This whole story is comical almost. And, and it's setting here. And then in verse 11, it says this about what happens to Peter next. It says in verse 11, then Peter came to himself and said, I guess he woke up. You know, he finally realizes, hey, this is not a dream. This is not a vision. This is reality. I'm out on the street now. There's no angel here anymore, and I'm by myself. What do I do? And he says, now he came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. 
Why might Peter doubt the reality of, of, of his escape and think that he's seen a vision? Do we ever doubt that God can do what he says he says we can do in Scripture? And this is the Peter who had walked with Jesus. But for a while there, he was doubting it was real. He thought it was a vision. He came to his, comes to his senses the acknowledge that his release is from God. Then in verse 12, it says this. When this had dawned on him, when he finally gets, comes to his senses and says, Oh, it was God. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, this is the funny part of the story. I always laugh at this. I'm going like, how typical. Verse 13, he decides to go to Mary's house. And this is where everybody was gathered together, and they've been praying. Remember what they've been doing? Ever since he was in prison, they've been praying for one thing. What was the one thing they prayed for? This is a test, a one-question test. What have they been praying for? Peter's uh, release. Thank you. Peter's release. That's what they've been praying for. He comes to the house. They're praying. They're still praying. This must have been like a 24-hour prayer chain thing. And they're still up praying. Verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance. And a servant named Rhoda, which can be translated Rose, came to answer the door. (laughs) When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed It doesn't say this. She forgot to open the door. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. These were the people, once again, that had been praying for what? Peter's release. They'd been praying fervently. They'd been on their face before God. They'd been praying this. And what is their response? Oh, thank goodness. No, that's not what they responded. Verse 15. You're out of your mind, girl. That's what it says right there in Scripture. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, oh, it must be his angel. They had an understanding to Jewish people. It's another another whole theological discussion about angels and stuff. But anyway, Peter is alive and well, and they have trouble believing it. Now, I want to tell you something. I have to be honest about this passage. I find comfort in this passage. I don't know about you, but I find comfort in this passage because they had trouble believing that their prayers could be answered so completely and so quickly and that their prayers made a difference. I believe that we have the same trouble today. And as a result, we struggle to pray. And when we pray, we often fall short. We have these hollow, hollow, empty, memorized, unfelt prayers. Or when we pray, our mind wanders. I mean, I have to tell you personally that usually the only way I can stay on focus with praying is keep a list. You know why? Because my life is so busy and i got so many things going on. I can't stay focused on what's going on. Because I have trouble just being still before God. It's hard. And you know, it shouldn't be hard to pray. Because prayer requires so little. You don't have to be in a certain place. You know that? You don't have to. You can pray anywhere. Anywhere. You don't have to wear certain clothes. I mean, you can pray in your pajamas. 
You can pray, you know, um, any way you want to. You don't have to have any kind of special orientation. I understand that clearly because when we went to Africa and we met with these Christian believers under the tree, they told us that several of them had been meeting together had they have no teaching whatsoever at this point, little or no teaching whatsoever about anything. They just know they want to follow Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ. And so they've been meeting together as a group, a few of them, four or five of them, been meeting every Sunday morning under this mango tree together and ask them, what do they do? We pray. We pray. They knew how to pray. It's the simplest of Christian disciplines. And yet it seems sometimes to be the most elusive, sometimes the most difficult thing to get right. I know very few people, if I'd ask them this question, how's your prayer life? They would say, well, my prayer life is as good as it could be. I've never had anybody say that to me. All of us think, well, my prayer life could be better. You know, Satan doesn't want you to pray. And he will try to interrupt you any way he can because he knows the power of prayer. You know, he saw what happened to Peter in prison when people prayed. He saw what happened at Pentecost when people prayed. Satan is not troubled when you enter a church building to come to a service and sit down in a, in a, in a row. Because you could be here and kind of your mind could be somewhere else and you could, just because you show up and sing songs and listen to a message doesn't mean you worship God. See, Satan is not troubled by that. He's not troubled when you say, oh, I'm going to serve on a committee and do something for God or I'm going to give some money or do this. But he shatters when you pray. And when you pray heartfelt, honest prayers. But I want to tell you this, he cannot stop you from praying. James 4, verses 7 through 9 says this, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And in Psalm 145 it says this, Our Lord, everything you do is kind and thoughtful and you are near to everyone whose prayers are sincere. This morning we sang that song, you know. I'm hungry. for. I want to be hungry for more of you, God. Prayer is one of the keys to that. And it's not a formula. It's, it's not a hard thing to do. And, and you look at the life of Jesus. Jesus, prayer was powerful and important in the life of Jesus. He woke early in the morning to pray. He dismissed people who were around him, even in the midst of ministry, so he could pray. He hiked up a mountain to pray. And he faced his greatest challenge in the Garden of Gethsemane, doing what? Praying. I'm, I thought about this question. I'm thinking about this this crazy scenario here in, in Acts 12. And I'm thinking about in our own life, have you ever been running around confused while the answer to your prayers is knocking at your door? And you just won't open the door to let it in? There's just no further way than a prayer? Finally, in Acts 12, 16, the last verse in Acts chapter 12 I'm going to look at today is this. It says this, the mix-up, the door is finally resolved. (laughs) 
Verse 16, but Peter kept on knocking. Peter was persistent too. And when they opened the door, they saw him. And what did they go? They do. They were astonished. Why? I mean, if they really believed that prayer was something powerful and God was was there, and then He answers the prayer, why are we so astonished when God does it? Many years ago, there was, on a small island off the coast of Scotland, there were two old, older ladies. It's, it's the, the island called, I, I never know how to pronounce this right. It's H-E-B-R, it's Hebrides, I guess, or Hebrides or something like that. It's a small island. Anyway, it was after World War II and church attendance was in decline after World War II. And not a church in the Hennebridge Islands off the coast of Scotland could boast of having a single young person, not a single young person attending Sunday services on the islands. They had several churches. Instead, the youth of Scotland, it says, flocked to dance the picture show in the drinking houses. That was a quote from, from that day. But there were two elderly ladies on that island. Peggy Smith, she was 84 years old, and her sister Christine was 82. And blindness had taken the sight of the first and the old age had crippled the body of the second. They were widows. They were homebound. And they had gone to this little church on the island there in the, in, in the, in the town of Barvis. And, and, the, and the town and the, and the church was in desperate situation. There seemed to be a spiritual darkness that hung over the island. At that time, even though they'd had years and years in the past where they'd had a real, they had some revivals and some really cool things happened. God was working there, but it'd been a long, 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 long time since anything had happened in that, in that region. And it seemed that everyone had turned away from God. I mean, the young people would mock them if they, if they saw any of the people who said they were believers. But in October of 1949, the leaders of the small church in the village of Barvis there, they called upon every member to enter into a spirit of earnest prayer. And these two ladies, you know, some people were thinking, they couldn't even come to church anymore because they were so crippled. One was blind, one was crippled with arthritis so severely that you couldn't get out. They were homebound. And the people just kind of ignored them. And they said, well, what can those two older ladies do? But they were determined to do something. And they decided that they would turn their house into a place of prayer. And so for two nights a week, from 10 p.m. until 4 a.m., think about that, from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., two nights a week, the two sisters stayed up and prayed on behalf of the church in the village. They persisted in prayer. They prayed earnestly for the village and the people and for the church. And after five months of this prayer, Peggy told Christine that God had told her that it was time to hold a revival. And even God had given her the name of a person that was that time a famous revival preacher, a famous preacher. His name in England was Duncan Campbell. And so Peggy... um, Sent word to the pastor, would he come by? And so he came by and she said, I feel it's time after all this prayer to finally, to finally have 
some services, revival services here in our village and the pastors that we've been praying to and, and we think it's time as well. And, and she said, God has even given me a name, Duncan Campbell. And so the pastor tried to contact Duncan Campbell and he was dismayed because Duncan was not available at that time. He had a very busy schedule, a man in demand. And so he went back, the pastor goes back to Peggy and and tells her, and she says, don't give up, go back and ask again. And he went back and asked again, and Duncan Campbell said, hey, I'll make it a point of doing that. And so two weeks later, two weeks later, the meetings begin. And for five weeks, Duncan Campbell preached in the Barvis village. Not five Sundays, five weeks. And large crowds gathered. And the crowds were so large that they had to add in an additional service. Besides the 7 p.m. service, they added in a 10 p.m. service and a midnight service. And eventually had to add in a 3 a.m. service. As the people were responding. And as the true story goes, so many people gave their lives to God that the liquor store closed down and the saloon closed its doors from lack of business. And revival came up on that little island and the young people came to Christ and fathers came back to their families and they witnessed the Spirit of God and the move of God in Barbas, due in large part to two elderly ladies who felt called upon themselves more than anything else to be earnest in prayer before God. Because they understood that the most important thing is the one thing they could do. And that is pray. You know, I thought about what Great Oaks could be thought of. We talked about before a loving church, a caring church. The challenge this past year is to be a giving church. As the challenge was as we free our resources up that we, instead of giving them to ourselves and building more stuff, is to give more and more of our stuff away close by, internationally, to reach people for Christ. I think those are all great things. But probably one of the greatest things that I think we could be known as is could we have Great Oaks be known as a place of prayer. That when people have a need, when we hear of a need, that our first response is to pray. Not just pray a little bit, but to pray persistently and earnestly. You know, the Bible tells us, never tells us to teach without ceasing. (laughs) Sometimes you think I do that. Our Chris sometimes does it too. So that's all right. But the issue is, it said, you know, the Bible never tells us to teach without ceasing or to preach without ceasing. But it tells, does tell us this. It tells us to what? To pray without ceasing. You know, I'm thinking about Jesus. Jesus in describing the church, in describing the house of God, he says, Jesus never said, my house shall be called a house of teaching or a house of activity or a house of Bible study. You know what he said that his house was to be called? My house shall be called a house of prayer. 
You see, no other spiritual activity on earth is guaranteed results like prayer is. It says in Matthew 18, 19 from the message translation, it says, when two of you get together on anything, it all on earth and make a prayer of it, my Father in heaven goes into action. And, and to me, it says that over and over again that the prayers on earth result in activity in heaven. It doesn't always mean that God does it exactly, or we've got to go back and remember the, the things that happen in all of Acts chapter 12. It starts off with what? James. People have prayed for him. And you know, after James had died, it would have been real easy for the church to say, well, God didn't answer our prayer the way we wanted to, and quit praying. But what do we do? Peter, Peter gets thrown in prison and they continue to pray. The issue of prayer is not about results. The issue is to trust God and to go to him in obedience. And regardless of the outcome of the prayers, to realize that God really ultimately is in control. And when we trust him, even if you're in prison, chained between two guards, and you think you might die the next day, you can still get a good night's sleep. God hears the prayers of His children. The question is, are His children still praying? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakcc.org.